the sleeper in the bus. There's skill, there's luck. A keeper or cut. Open file, a case shut. A short stop or stop short. Press play or press abort. Intelligence for sports. Good of y'all to listen. Aiming at what truth is. Mike and Eno pitching like the name is Michael Lewis. Others in the dust or left out to rust. Who's hitting? Who's missing? The sleeper in the bus. The sleeper in the bus. Hello out there in Fantasyland, and welcome back to The Sleeper and the Bust. Uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed your July 4th. I'm Mike Podhorzer, and I'm joined today by Rotographs contributor Zach Sanders. And today we'll be discussing projection systems and a pair of soon-to-be DL returnees in the Big Apple. And the most interesting player alive today, actually third most searched for player on Fangraphs, no surprise really, is Ricky Nolasco, who is now a member of of the Los Angeles Dodgers. So Zach, how much does this actually increase Nolasco's value? I mean, obviously he's moving from a pretty terrible offense to one that seems to be much improved with a bunch of injured players having returned. Yeah, I don't think it increases his value that much other than the wins. Uh, Marlins Stadium, although he didn't get much of a benefit from it this year, he did last year. And that was a huge pitcher's park for him. Well, you know, Dodger Stadium is not exactly a hitter's paradise. Uh, I think just the wins are what's going to go up. He's going to not really be facing any extra competition compared to the the NL East. Uh, maybe a little bit more because the Mets have been bad this year and the Nationals have been surprisingly bad. But I think it's just the wins. I just think it's going to be the better offense behind him. I don't think the defense behind him is much better to help the whip or the ERA. So it's just going to be getting more run support. Yeah, and what's interesting about the defense is I actually checked on the Marlins and the Dodgers ranks in both UZR 150 as well as BABIP allowed. And check this out. So the Marlins rank ninth in UZR 150 versus the Dodgers, who only rank 21st, advantage Marlins. And then in BABIP allowed, Marlins rank 16th, while the Dodgers are all the way down at 25th. So both metrics suggest that the Marlins actually have a better defense than the Dodgers. Not a great defense, but certainly better than the Dodgers. And Ricky Nolasco has been known to have high BABIPs in the past. So that's really not a good sign, especially because he's allowing line drives at a 24% rate. And that's it's not something you want to see going forward from Nolasco if he's going to fall into his underperforming his skill metrics ways like he's done like basically every single season in the past. I mean, he's this generation's Dave Bush, and that's never a good thing. Yeah, I mean, this is really that the first year he's lived up to those skills. But I don't know. I you know I think all of us stat guys kind of secretly love him in one way or the other, just because we want to see guys regress to what they're actually capable of doing. But I like him. He, he mixes pitches. He doesn't rely on his fastball, so it's not like he's a one-trick pony. But I I hope he does well. I don't think that anything bad's going to happen just because of the move. But you never know with regression. It could just be a bad second half, and that's the end of it. And he has to go into free agency with some bad numbers. Yeah, you know, he's a, a weird character just because his skills had been really good back in 2010 and 2009, and all the stats heads loved him, expected a, a major breakout, an ERA in the mid-threes, but then his skills started to decline, and suddenly he wasn't even that good of a pitcher, and although he was still underperforming his expected ERA metrics, he wasn't that good of a pitcher. I mean, last year, his strikeout rate dropped to below 6 per 9, and and suddenly his skills have rebounded, and now... He looks back to be the legitimately good pitcher if his luck isn't terrible. And and basically his skills have lined up with his ERA for a change, which never seems to last with Nolasco. 
Uh, can you believe that he's only posted an ERA below four? Uh, actually, below four forty-eight, only once in his entire career. I mean, it's pretty crazy, and, and you just wonder if there truly are reasons why he's underperformed, or is it there's always got to be an outlier, and he just happens to be that one outlier. I, I just don't know. I don't think when it happens season after season after season that we can just say he's an outlier. You know, it's the same thing with Matt Cain, where you can say Cain, you know, before this year, always breaks the system. He's, you know, he's the he's he's the uh, exception that kind of you know proves the rule. That's a fallacy and whatnot. But it's something has to be happening where he's not doing something right, or he's just allowing too hard a contact out of the stretch. And all this has been looked at before, and everyone tries to find what's going on, and there never seems to be a concrete answer. But so we kind of expect him to actually sadly regress to kind of below his mean and do worse than we think he's going to do because that's what he's done in the past. Yeah, and interestingly, I think control is a bit of a concern. You wouldn't know it by his walk rate, but his first strike percentage is at its lowest since his rookie 2006 season, and his zone percentage has now dropped for one, two, three, four, five straight years. His zone percentage has dropped. Ever since 2008, it has declined every single season. Oh, I'm sorry. It did not decline in 2011, but almost in a straight line, it's declined. And now it's sitting at a career low. So you wonder if he could actually maintain that two-walk rate if he's just not throwing first-pitch strikes or throwing pitches in the zone. So I think that's a concern. So I think the bottom line is that his fantasy value is not going to increase as much as most might assume given the move. Would you agree with that? I think that's right on the money. All right. This is a good transition, I think, into talking about projection systems because like me, you also project players yourself, and, and you're one of the four, including myself, Eno, and Jeff Zimmerman using the ZIP system, who takes part in the consensus preseason rankings and then the updated consensus rankings throughout the season for every single position. So why don't you share with us how exactly you go about projecting players in the preseason? Well, the first step in the preseason, I actually sit down with a piece of notebook paper and go old school and write up all the depth charts. I don't look at the computer. I don't look at any of the other depth charts out there. I sit down and do it from memory, see if I can figure out who's playing where, what team everyone's on, who they got as the backups and whatnot. That's quite and from there. Yeah, it, it takes a little <laughs> while, but it's, uh, it's strangely cathartic. It's just kind of relaxing to sit down and see if you can pull things out of the thin air. Uh, do you do it in your mother's basement? <laughs> if we had a basement, I probably would. I'm not going to lie. Um, sometimes I've actually done it at work during downtime. So I'm not supposed to do that, but it's the brains of going old school and just using a piece of paper. I can carry it with uh, me. I, I hope nobody from work is listening. <laughs> but then after that, it's sitting down, and I actually do everything manually. I don't have any kind of system that comes up with my projections for me. I sit down and look at every year. It's about 600 players. I sit down and look at every one of their player pages. I'm looking at all their numbers from the last few years, and it takes, you know, it takes a little bit of time, of course, and that's why I use, I don't, you don't see a lot of my writing in the off season on the site because I'm always sitting down doing this stuff instead, and it, it takes a lot of time. But and just like anyone else doing manual projections, I'm looking for certain things that you know I think are more important than maybe someone else does. I have my biases, and so you see mistakes being made here and there with certain kinds of players. But because I do it manually, and I'm, you kind of learn along the way, and so you get better every year. And so every year, I'd like to think my projections get a little more on the money. I learn a little bit about different types of players and how they're going to age or how they're going to develop or certain types of teams and how they develop players. 
But it's really a long process to do the original projections and to come up with essentially your baseline for what you're going to use for the entire season. Yeah, I, I think when we do manual projections, the, the toughest situations are when we're trying to project a player coming off of a breakout or career season or trying to project a player coming off of a bust or a disappointing season. And the question then is, you obviously have to look at their age and everything else, but the question is then, is this a new level of performance, or was it a fluke, and do you project a full rebound, maybe a partial rebound? And there's no right answer. And I mean, until the, the following season plays out, you really don't know. So I, is there anything that you've learned that you basically – have decided most of the time that you're going to project, or is it really a player-by-player player, uh, basis? It tends to just be player-by-player. Player. Um, you can, you know, of course, there's all the little things you can look at. Okay, did the guy actually mature physically, so he's actually coming into his prime? Then, okay, maybe that was real. Uh, did he actually cut down on some things that we're not seeing? You know, was he taking certain pitches more often than others? And that's when you can really get down and dirty with the data. But for the most part, it's just kind of sitting down and feeling out the player and a lot of times you know even though we have this bevy of numbers in front of us it's kind of still a gut reaction and that's the sad part of it when we have all these projection systems and we're working you know for fan graphs here but a lot of times you sit down and it's like okay i just don't feel it with this guy something doesn't seem right and you just have to go with it i think the hardest thing is is when i get to a player and i have to throw up my hands i'm like darn it i just don't know why why isn't my crystal ball working and yeah, and it happens every, every year. There's always those couple guys where you sit down and you just say, I have people ask you about it. And you say, I have no idea. It's what's going to happen. It's going to happen, and we're going we're gonna to take a best guess. Yeah, I think Chase Headley was kind of like that. I mean, he showed great power in the minor leagues and, and then nothing, obviously, up until last year. So it's kind of like, oh, do you play it safe? All right, well, we'll go with 20 home runs. Well, he's never shown 20 home run power. He showed like 12 home run power, 10 home run power, and 30 home run power. So is 20 home run power really the safe projection? I, I That just seems like a cop-out to me. So, I mean, he was a, a good example of either his power was for real or it was a complete fluke. It's not mostly for real. So he was, he was one of those guys. I'm sure next year Gene Segura, with his power specifically, is going to be somebody you throw up your arms and, and you just say, I don't know. He's never shown this power before, but he's young. I just don't know. It, I, I don't know if it's real. So what about during the season? Do you update your projections during the season or do you just basically uh, you know, mentally update what your opinions are of each player based on a, a weighting of what they've done so far? Yeah, it's sort of more the mentally adjustments, you know, just because of the time it would take to do 600 players. Yeah, that would be crazy. Plus all the new players that come onto the scene that you didn't think were going to be there. So you're talking closer to probably 650, 700 by the time you sit down and do updates. It just would take way too much time. And the added benefit of doing all the little things with it probably wouldn't equal out just the time it would take. And so you sit down. I do still look at almost every player kind of looking, okay, is he doing something that I didn't expect? Is he doing things that, you know, maybe it's just a fluke. We don't know. How much do I have to adjust that baseline I set beginning of the year? And, of course, you have all the injuries and playing time adjustments. But it's mostly looking for those changes and just kind of mentally figuring out, okay, I like this guy a little more now, so you bump him up a little bit. Or, okay, I'm not seeing what I thought would happen yet, so I'm going to bump him down a little bit. Yeah, and actually I, I forgot to mention something that I learned when looking at disappointing seasons and, and breakout seasons and projecting them for the following year. 
is that we tend to weight the previous season way too highly and kind of ignore for the most part what the player has done in, in seasons prior to that. And, and so basically what I've learned is not to wait. If a player is coming off a disappointing season and he's young, usually that player will rebound fully. And, and a lot of times I kick myself and I say, oh, of course he rebounds. I put too much weight on the previous season. And this is what happens every year in fantasy leagues is these types of players become undervalued. And then the guys coming off of career years, they never end up living up to what they did the previous year, and they end up being overvalued. And this happens every single year, and and you always have to remind yourself not to put too much weight on the prior year because they have a, a full history of, of previous performance level, and, and, and regression is a strong force, whether it's regressing up to your previous performance level or down to it. Usually the player isn't going to change his skill level that drastically from one season to the next. So I think that's important. That also goes for in-season. Remember how hot Justin Upton was to open the season? What, he hit like 10 home runs in three games? So everybody was probably pushing Justin Upton up, thinking, oh, last year he was probably playing through an injury. Now he's with his brother. And they came up with all of these reasons why Justin Upton now is like a top three outfielder. Sure enough, he slumped big time, and now he's back to normal, his normal pace that everybody projected for him to begin with in the preseason. And that's what you got to keep on reminding yourself, that most of the time, it's just a hot start, and all these players are going to end up with the numbers that you expected in the preseason. Well, sometimes there are those legit changes, though, and that's the problem, is trying to identify yeah. what's real and what's not, because you have guys like Justin Upton, and then you have Chris Davis, who all of a sudden is continuing on it. And exactly. No one would have thought that. So it's that's the hard part, is figuring out what's real, you know, what's quote-unquote real and what's not. Yeah, and that's also what usually could make or break your fantasy baseball season, because if you can pick up those breakout guys from free agency or, or even – by them maybe the first week of their hot streak that ends up continuing, then you're in good position to win. But it's, I mean, us stat heads basically require so big of a sample size that by the time the sample size is big enough, uh, the season's basically over. So you can't actually act on any of the information. So you just got to go blindly and just cross your fingers and hope that the call you're making is correct without the necessary uh, playing time information and uh, sample size that normally we would require. And that makes it difficult. And and that's just one of the reasons that there's a lot of luck involved in fantasy baseball. Yeah, and another reason why maybe people shouldn't get too excited over the rankings we publish all the time. And we see that a lot in the comments, dickering <laughs> over, you know, a couple spots and whatnot. It's like, okay, you know, as much as the scientific side of it we have, a lot of it's still guesswork. And we don't know until it's going to happen. We're trying to base things off what's happened in the past and who knows what happened over you know the six months of the off season that's what people don't seem to remember all the time so you know they play six months and then they don't just start right up again they have six months to to work on things or to you know sit around and get lazy and fat but we don't know what's going to happen so we we try to make our best guess and we use all the numbers we can and all the the years of experience we have doing it but it's still in the end it's just a guess we have no idea yeah, and it's funny the inconsistency sometimes with the comments. Sometimes we don't wait the first months of performance enough, and they're like, oh, he's batting 320 with 10 home runs already in the first month. How have you not moved him up? Why is he still on this tier? But then if we moved up another player, 
then it's like, oh, well, look at his history, and you're moving him up just based on a small sample size. His bad pip is 380. His home run per fly ball is unsustainable. Why do you have him this high? So it's like no matter what you do, it's wrong. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> All right, speaking of breakout guys, here's uh, somewhat of an oldie breakout guy, John Lackey, who is 34, and yet he's basically having his best season of his career. 281 ERA, a 117 whip, only a 6-5 and five record, which is pretty crazy considering he's on a great offense and he's got an ERA sub-3, so he's clearly not gotten very good run support. So is John Lackey a guy who's going to continue to maintain pretty strong mixed league value all year? I don't know about pretty strong, but I think at the very least he's someone you have to own simply because of the offense he's on. He's going to get a lot of run support even if he hasn't already, and this is a offense that hits like you know as a whole like one of the best players in the league i saw some numbers the other day that suggested that and he's got his highest k rate since 2005 and this is the lowest base on ball percentage he's ever had which is amazing when you're talking about a 34 year old who's kind of always been somewhat of a control specialist and so you know the last couple years are certainly clouding our judgment because he was quite frankly just awful in a Red Sox uniform, but at least I'm thinking part of it's real, and of course part of it's just based on maybe the hitters aren't picking the ball up as well, maybe he made small adjustments, and they're going to come back to haunt him a little bit, but at very least you have to at least own him in mixed leagues. Yeah, and he's also inducing a career-high level of ground ball rate, which is uh, pretty interesting. I mean, his pitch mix, depending on whether you look at the uh, baseball info solutions under the regular pitch type section or the pitch FX, you get a diff- slightly different picture of what he's doing in terms of his mix. And, and it's always difficult to tell when both sections have different pitch types. And, you know, one section is saying that he's throwing his fastball more often and his cutter less and his slider no more, which says to me that it's probably just a classification error. So it's really tough to identify if he's you know, throwing his pitches differently. I mean, he didn't gain any velocity on his fastball, but he is inducing a higher swinging strike rate, actually the highest since 2006, which is pretty crazy given his age. So I don't think he's going to maintain a sub-3 ERA, of course, but a mid-3 ERA, maybe a 360 ERA, I think is perfectly reasonable, and and the wins should start coming more often just given their offense. So, yeah, I think he should continue to maintain decent mixed league value as well but of course there's no way he's going to maintain a sub three era that 80 percent strand strand rate or left on base percentage is not going to stay that high right and i think you know you mentioned that his velocity hasn't gone up but i think for me the big thing is that it hasn't gone down and this is a guy who's 34 it's supposed to be you know dropping a little bit every year and this is true it's been steady and so that's one of the things that's a little bit uh it's good to see from this guy. It's a bright spot that, okay, maybe this isn't a, too bad of a fluke because he's not like he's getting worse in any one area. He's still maintaining for somehow, even though he doesn't have what scouts would call a great body type, but he's maintaining. And so who knows? Maybe part of it's real, but you know, I agree. I think a mid-three ERA, I could even see it going up the rest of the year to a higher threes, about 3.8, more like he did uh, his last year at the Angels. I think Tim Lincecum needs a trade to the Red Sox just so we can learn from John Lackey. <laughs> Maybe even Justin Verlander at this point, because his velocity drop is is significant, and that's a bit scary. If you're for a guy that essentially relies on velocity, yeah, that's always the one thing you never want to see. Yeah, clearly. All right, let's play uh, the Would You Rather game with uh, John Lackey. So basically, 
Would you rather John Lackey or any of the following pitchers for the rest of the season? And the first guy is A.J. Brunette, who is coming off of the disabled list today. I'd rather have Burnett. I think the strikeouts are going to stay a little higher than Lackey will, and I think I'd for always prefer the guy pitching in the NL. And he's got a pretty decent ballpark with him, so it's it's not a big deal. He's on a, a team that's winning, so he'll get the wins, and he was one of the NL strikeout leaders before he hit the DL, so I'm going to go with Burnett. Yeah, the best team in the National League, the Pittsburgh Pirates. <laughs> Who would have thunk? I don't think that's going to continue, but... I completely agree. I would also go with A.J. Burnett. I think the strikeout rate is more sustainable, and I would just prefer the National League pitcher. I mean, preseason, I think everybody rated A.J. Burnett better than John Lackey, and so I'm going to stick with the guy who's basically done what you expected over the guy that's been surprising. Even though he's had years of success that have been so long ago that we basically forget that John Lackey has been pretty good before. Uh, All right, the next guy is uh, another AL guy, so maybe an easier comparison here. It's Derek Holland. I think I'd rather have Lackey. I don't... Holland continues to not be overly impressive considering the kind of stuff he's shown in the past, and I think Lackey's just on a better team, and I'd rather take the risk on getting the wins considering both aren't exactly in pitcher's paradises, so I think I'd stick with Lackey. This is a tough one because you're right in that... Holland has basically shown the stuff to have higher strikeout rates, but his strikeout percentage right now is actually at a career high. So it looks like this could be a legit breakout season. But it does concern me. He pitches in Texas, and when it gets hot in the summer, I mean, that's a really bad ballpark to be pitching in. So I think this is going to be fairly close, but I think I'm going to give the edge slightly to John Lackey just because the ballpark worries me. And uh, I think the Red Sox offense is a bit better than the Rangers. So, Lackey, the the slight edge, but I like Holland. I mean, his swinging strike rate right now is finally above the league average. It's amazing it took this long for that to happen. But it's above the league average. It's very good. First strike percentage is up. Zone percentage is looking great. So, all of his stuff is looking great that this is a legit breakout year for Holland. But I think Lackey's situation is slightly, slightly better. Uh, all right, how about, this might be a very easy one, but how about rotation mate John Lester? So the battle of the Johns here, one with an H and one without an H. <laughs> I think this is, you know, this is probably the toughest of them all because Lester is a guy that we all still mentally kind of think of as an ace, and he hasn't been really for a couple years since 2011. He's really struggled the last two seasons. Um, you know, depending on what numbers you look at, of course, the ERA has been much worse than the FIP and things like that. But in this case, I think I'd still rather have Lackey. He's striking out more guys. He's walking less guys. He's The home runs are going to be about the same. But even though Lester's kind of still that bigger name we think of, I think Lackey right now might actually be a little better. Yeah, I don't. I honestly don't know what happened to Lester because he hasn't – I mean his velocity has declined ever so slightly each year. Back in 2009, his fastball was at 93.7. Now it's at – 92-4, which clearly is a decline, but it, it's gone down, you know, a couple of ticks each year rather than one swift decline like a Verlander has seen. So it doesn't seem like it's enough to really explain the strikeout rate decline, and that decline really started last year, where his velocity was only down 0.2 miles per hour from the previous season. So you just wonder what's going on with this stuff that he's just not striking out more batters. 
And and considering his strikeout rate right now is almost identical to last year, it's hard to imagine that suddenly it's going to reverse course over the rest of the season and that his strikeout stuff is going to suddenly return. And, and Lackey has always had better control than Lester, and Lackey's sudden penchant for ground balls now matches Lester. So there's really nothing that Lester does that's better than Lackey. And, and since Lackey, again, it's not like he's never had success before. We just have forgotten about it just because it's, it's been a little while. So Lackey's done it before. It, it wouldn't be a surprise. So crazily enough, I mean, I'm, I'm going to take Lackey too. I mean, in the preseason, I think it would have been a surprise to say that John Lackey is going to outperform uh, John Lester. I, I, this could have been one of our 10 bold predictions in the preseason, and we probably would have gotten laughed at in the comments. Like, what are you smoking? I think the big thing with Lester, too, is, you know, even though we see the strikeout rate itself has only dropped really the last two years, the swinging strike rate the year before was down. And so we kind of saw some inklings that this could happen. And so all of a sudden it did and it caught up to him. And we never know. Maybe he'll never quite be the same. And, I mean, they have the option to bring him back next year, but I don't know if they will at this point. Yeah, when you look at his whole career, it looks like 2009 and 2010 were the big outliers. I mean, his strikeout rates were nearly a batter per inning. His swinging strike rates were over 10, but he's never approached that in any other year. So that just looks like his peak, and now he's just reverted back to you know a decent starting pitcher, and he might not get, uh, given his uh, injuries, I mean, he's been dealing with a hip injury. Uh, right now he is 29 years old, so he's approaching that age where, I mean, it's probably not going to happen that you're going to recover velocity, or really rebound skill-wise unless he improves his control. So that's unfortunate because, I mean, Lester was a guy who I really liked for a rebound this year, and it doesn't seem like that's necessarily going to happen. All right, let's move along to the Big Apple in New York where there are two big-name, soon-to-be DL returnees, Alex Rodriguez and Derek Jeter, likely to come back around the All-Star break. Are either of these two guys going to have 12-team mixed league value for the rest of the season when they come back? I think Jeter will if either of them do. I mean, with Jeter, it's all going to come down to his Babbitt because I don't think the power is necessarily going to be there. We're talking about a guy who's almost 40 years old uh, and with, you know, with a bum ankle. You know, he may be able to still hit even with the lower Babbitt 280 and score some runs. And, you know, that's you know, it's a, it's going to be probably an empty 280. But in fantasy, a 280 with runs, it's nothing to scoff at from a shortstop. I mean, it's not going to be great. He's not going to you know, give you the win for the rest of the year, but he's going to be a productive player. And A-Rod, I worry about the batting average and the power with the hip continuing to bother me. He's not going to be able to turn on the ball as well. And I see A-Rod more as a 260, 270 guy the rest of the way with maybe eight home runs. And, and that's fine, but it's not really something you're looking for from your third baseman. And he's probably not going to steal any bases given his age. I mean, what is he, like 38? And with that hip uh, condition, uh, he's probably not going to steal bases, which used to be a category that really boosted his fantasy value because he contributed in all five categories. And uh, Jeter coming off that ankle, do you think he's going to steal bases either? No, I really doubt he does. And that's why, you know, it's just going to be 280. He's going to score a bunch of runs if they let him hit the top of the lineup. Even if they don't, you know, the line's been pretty bad this year, but you return Jeter and A-Rod, and it's a little bit better. And so I don't think he's going to steal many bases. I think it's just going to be a guy that maybe he's a guy you don't start every day. Maybe he's a plug-and-play guy, you know, the term I like to use. He's going to come in, he's going to hit a decent batting average. He might score a run or two, but he's not really going to hurt you, and so you play him anyway. Yeah, I think both of them are also going to be near replacement level. Uh, a guy that maybe if you have an injury – 
you, you plug these guys in, but I don't think they're going to do a whole lot just because their injuries are going to, I would think, affect their performance in the fantasy categories. And, and, and given their ages, who knows if they're going to remain healthy all season to begin with. I mean, it's, it's possible they, as they're playing, they come up with another malady that lands them on the DL that's unrelated to the surgery and the injuries that they had that they're recovering from. So they're risky propositions. Of course, I own Jeter in 15-team Tower Wars League, and I've been scrambling for a shortstop all season long. It's really pathetic, the shortstops I've had on my team, the carousel. Um, and now I'm kind of excited for Jeter returning. And a 15-team league that counts on base percentage, he definitely has value. But clearly not the value that I expected when I drafted him in March. And he might only be really a two-category guy, run scored and batting average or on base percentage in, in Jeter. Uh, A-Rod also should be uh, a decent on-base percentage guy, but who knows how his power is going to be affected. He's not going to steal bases. So, yeah, I wouldn't be too excited about these guys, especially if you're in a shallower league. So deep leaguers, yeah, might as well take a chance, but shallower, you could probably do better. All right. Ike Davis finally called up after weeks of rumors when he was going to be back with the Mets. He's already been reinstalled into the cleanup spot, and he's already got a couple of hits, which is like more than he's had all season long. So, And he, he performed, as you would expect, quite well at AAA. He walked almost as many times as he struck out. Strikeout rate was much improved. So now it's a matter of, is this improvement going to translate to the big leagues? Zach, do you think it will? I think to a certain extent, and you know, part of it's because I don't think he's quite as bad as he showed earlier this year. Although it wasn't just the numbers. I mean, you watched him hit, and you know, he just seemed kind of lost, and he, the contact he's making was really weak, and just dribbling the ball to the right side of the infield. But this is a guy who had a weak first half last year, and then came on strong and had a huge second half of last season. So it's not like a return would be unprecedented. I mean, the power potential, and maybe not even potential, the present power is there. I just don't know at this point if the batting average ever will be. Because, I mean, this year's strikeout rate was, quite frankly, unacceptable. It's, it's something you cannot really see in a major league hitter. Yeah, and uh, you got to kind of take it with a grain of salt what he did in AAA. I mean, this is a, a major league hitter going to AAA. He better dominate. Otherwise, Yeah, you'd be more concerned if he didn't. Yeah, of course. So I don't think you can take that lower strikeout rate as a, a sign that he's going to make better contact in the majors. But, you know, if I actually needed a first baseman or a corner guy in my leagues, I wouldn't hesitate to try to buy him low if there were owners saying, oh, he's finally back. Now I can actually trade him now that he has trade value. And I, I don't know. I, I wonder how fantasy owners feel if they're rejuvenated, if they think that given the, the, the good minor league – performance if they think he's going to rebound or if they think oh now that, that he's back I can finally sell him because I don't like him anymore I don't know it probably depends on the fantasy owner but as you said last year he had an equally bad first half and then he hit like 28 home runs or something crazy maybe not that good but something he was really good in the second half last year so he's done this before and uh, obviously he has a ton of power so he's capable of going on uh, an extended run so the fact that he's hitting cleanup already, I think he should be good. And uh, I would buy him low if if the opportunity presented itself. So I'm not really worried about uh, continued bad performance. He, he still walks a good amount. It's just the strikeouts. And he's never struck out this much in the past. So 
as we were talking about with projections, you got to take the bigger body of work in the history rather than waiting such a small sample. I mean, he didn't even get 200 at-bats that were already uh, you know, downgrading him on. I think that's slightly too small of a sample to really be seriously worried about him. Yeah, it was a little small sample, but the only problem I see here is with the Mets, what they're going to do with, you know, when Duda comes back, they put him back in the outfield. You know, Josh Satin was, was really good in his brief stint here. I'd like to see a little more of him. And at least they're going to platoon Davis and let Satin play against lefties. But I'd like to see what they do with their situation, not only the rest of this year, but going forward. If Davis doesn't really respond in the second half, are they going to give up on him in the offseason? Is he going to be a guy that other teams in real life try to buy low on? This is something that's going to be worth keeping an eye on. Yeah, that is true. Obviously, I think his destiny is in his hands. It'll depend on how he hits. But, I mean, this is a guy who has good place, good plate discipline and great power. I mean, and that's exactly what you want to see from your first baseman. So, I, I mean, it, it would be typical of the Mets to give up a play, uh, on a player and then see him thrive somewhere else. I mean, they're known to do things like that. And so I wouldn't be surprised if that's what they did. But, obviously, this is you know, different management in the organization in prior years that let players go that became stars elsewhere like Jeff Kent. But I think it would be a mistake to give up on Ike Davis, in my opinion. I agree. All right, let's move along to Kansas City, where suddenly there is an outfield rotation in center field and right field after they got rid of Jeff Francoeur, which was an overdue move. And, and now it's Lorenzo Cain, Gerard Dyson, and David Lowe patrolling those two positions. Three players in two positions. I hate this. I own Lorenzo Cain in my Tout Wars League, and now I can't really start him because if I don't know he's going to play every day, it's very hard to start in a weekly transaction league. So what do fantasy owners do? Are any of these guys going to have fantasy value? I think the best chance to have value is probably Dyson just because he has the skill set of having huge speed. This is a guy who stole 30 bases last year and barely over 300 plate appearances. I mean, he doesn't strike out as much as Kane. He doesn't have the same sort of power that Kane has. But he's actually flashing a little bit of gap power, doubles power this year. And I think if anyone's likely to land sort of a full-time role, it'll be him in center field just because of the speed he has. But I like Kane's skill set. He had a chance to be sort of a, a little bit of a version of a right-handed Michael Bourne with, with too many strikeouts, but he's still going to steal a bunch of bases. But he hasn't really stolen the bases, and that's been his big issue. And David Lowe, I... He's kind of the poor man's version of both. But, I mean, he's more of a poor man's version of Dyson where he's not going to strike out a whole lot, but he's not going to have any kind of power. He's not really going to walk, and he's just sort of going to steal some bases. But his stolen base profile, even in the minors, is quite different than Dyson's. It's, he's sort of just going to be an average hitter. And by that, I don't mean major league average. I mean batting average where he's not going to do anything. He's just going to sit out there and make contact and try to poke the ball through the infield. And, you know, who knows what the Royals because it might be something they enjoy. But I think for fantasy owners, Dyson's your best bet. Yeah, I agree that Dyson, at least in the short term, is the best bet. Because even if he kind of seeds some more playing time gradually to the other two, he's still going to be a pinch runner. And, and he's still going to be racking up the steals. So if you need steals, I mean, he's your guy. Because he can steal in bunches and doesn't really need a whole lot of plate appearances to do so. But long term, I mean, David Lowe seems to me like a fourth outfielder. I mean, the guy's 27 years old. It's not like he's some young hotshot prospect. This is a fourth outfielder. I think in the future, Lorenzo Kane should be their everyday starter. I mean, he's got a nice combination of power and speed. He's good defensively. He His walk rate is better than both Lowe and Dyson's, or I think it's similar to Dyson's. So 
I think offensively, he's the best of the bunch. He's good defensively. Of the three, I think he has the most upside offensively and defensively, and he should offer the most value to a real baseball team and a fantasy team. So eventually, I think the Royals need to realize this and instead basically rotate low and, and Dyson. But, but the thing is, is that Dyson's been showing power that he's never shown before. So if he returns to his slap-hitting ways, maybe Lowe takes over some playing time, but then if Lowe shows himself to be a fourth outfielder like he probably will, maybe Dyson takes over some more playing time. So between those two, I think it's going to be a battle there. And uh, I think Lorenzo Cain just really needs a hot streak just to prove that to Ned Yost that he's an everyday outfielder. And uh, then he should you know, be back in – fantasy players line up. I think he's got the nice power-speed combination. I mean, preseason, he, he was upside of a, a 15-30 guy, uh, and, and that's got a really nice value. So, Yeah, he had kind of had that little bit of a hot streak earlier this year, and that's why I think he's getting a little more rope than the other guys right now. But I don't, you know, the problem is he does have that 15-30 potential, but at this point, he's already in his prime. You know, is he really going to even get any better? And the stolen bases, he just isn't trying enough to reach those three. It's one of those problems where you see the guy has the potential to do it. It's just you want him to try. And, you know, it's a little bit selfish, of course, because we don't care about the Royals as a whole. We care about, you know, Lorenzo Cain. And so we want him to do these things and, and at least give it a try. And I don't know if he ever will at this point. I think his best bet is, you know, maybe a, more like a 10-20 guy in the big leagues, which is, still has some value, but it's more of a bench outfielder in mixed leagues. Yeah, and Lorenzo Cain, I mean, the reason he hasn't been trying, he only stole one base in June. And the reason is his on-base percentage was 267. So he just didn't hit. He, he was just never on base in June. So so that was obviously a problem for him. I mean, his on-base percentage has dropped every single month since April from 382 to 311 to 267. And that's obviously what lost the job for him. And as usual, the Royals are going with the what-have-you-done-for-me-lately mentality, which I just don't understand how major league managers do that. I mean, I make fun of fantasy managers who are always dropping – the cold player and picking up the hot hand. And I mean, they're fantasy players, so you can forgive them. They're not major league managers, but the fact that major league managers still do this just boggles my mind. Yeah. I think it comes down to, they sort of believe that the best way to get a guy out of the streak is to maybe sit him for a couple of days, let him get his head right. But yeah. I mean, there's been no real proof that that's a good thing to do and they continue to do it anyway. And so it's something we're going to have to deal with probably for years with guys, you know, like who knows this could be Yost last stop guys like Eric wedge, things those guys that are kind of more of the, for lack of a better term, Neanderthal managers, uh, I think we might be seeing the sort of the end of them and see more. We might see a little more influence from the GMs, the more saber-friendly GMs coming in and kind of priding their managers, kind of like Billy Bean has in the past, and saying, "No, you need to do this. This is the team I put together. You need to follow the plan." Yeah, I, I wonder why GMs don't actually do that more often because they they put the team together with a plan in mind and a lineup in mind, and if they see their managers not following through. It's like uh, it's kind of like a, a a restaurant putting together a dish and then the the patron kind of ordering it with without half the ingredients and and the chef is like uh, but I made it this way because it's the best eaten this way now you're ruining my dish and it's not going to be as good. Yeah, I think that's the perfect analogy. The uh, <laughs> the the managers the managers always want more personnel say and that's so they can do these things and they can have their own thing and. You see that leads to problems. You know, right now in Seattle, Wedge has a bunch of personnel input, and it's leading to a, a poor lineup. You know, they went to more power and, you know, six most home runs in baseball at a certain point and still one of the worst offenses, the worst teams in the league. And so I think we may be seeing sort of the end of that. The managers kind of uh, 
putting their own input in. With, you may see it with the big name guys, like maybe Francona can do that, guys like that. But that might be it. It might be the end of the Neanderthal managers. This is true, and we can only cross our fingers and hope. <laughs> anyway, that is a wrap, folks. So join us again on Tuesday for more fantasy fun on The Sleeper and the Bust. For Zach Sanders, I'm Mike Podhorzer. Thanks for tuning in.